there have been people through the years that have changed their military branches of service. I have one friend who was a lieutenant in the Navy, and then he transitioned to the Army. Come on. Nonetheless, for him, it's been a successful transition. It has enabled him to continue his military service, and he's, uh, he's been a great serviceman to this country. We're thankful for that. It does produce tension, however, at important events like the Army-Navy game, things like this. You can sense tension around those days between the branches of military service. In fact, if if you have the privilege of going on to an army base in your Navy uniform, there may, in fact, be a slight bit of tension that you'll experience. I've had that privilege, personally, to do that. Um, you may hear, even amongst one of the military branches, the Navy, some personnel jostling amongst themselves, because I don't know if you know this, but the Marines are a department of the Navy, now, we feel really strong, strongly about that. We feel really good about that. And then, you know, Marines are not generally politically correct, so they have no problem making the next statement. You know, when you tell them, yes, the Marines are a division or a department of the Navy, they say, yeah, the men's department. <laughs> what, are you, what are you gonna say to that, right? Maybe even behind enemy lines, there are ways in which the various branches rub each other the wrong way. But, ultimately, they're fighting for one cause. They're on the same team. They're battling together. Can you imagine a high-ranking United States military member joining ISIS. Can you imagine that? How repulsive would that be to your spirit to see that report in the paper? We would call them a Benedict Arnold. Now, you may remember a little bit about Benedict Arnold. During the time of the American Revolution, he was fighting for the Continental Army. He was actually given some pretty important posts. Philadelphia, now we really know what's wrong with the Philadelphians. <laughs> Benedict Arnold has tainted them forever. He also was given the, point, the, um, the command at West Point. So some important places he was given command over, and yet because he didn't really ascend to the kind of recognition that he desired, you'll remember he, he was a turncoat. And he started to work for the British forces, unbeknownst to the Continental Armies. Eventually, his his treachery and his uh, traitorous behavior was was brought to to bear, and they, they figured it out. And, of course, before that happened, he ran like a coward, like everyone that does that would do. He ran like a coward. And you know what's interesting? His traitorous actions actually emboldened the American Revolution... And according to one source, they said uh, Arnold's treason actually helped serve the floundering American war effort by re-energizing the Patriots' declining morale. And so here we have this, this man fighting for a cause and switching teams. 
it, it seems so illogical. Turning your back on your country is repulsive, I think. Turning your back on the course of freedom is, is probably also a repulsive action. But friends, what about turning your back on God? What would we call that? What we want to try to understand from Galatians chapter 1 this morning is that you must choose a side. You must choose a side. This text is so powerfully emotional, truthful, and delineating. It divides. Listen to how Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, You see it? Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Friends, this is, he's not playing games here. He's talking about eternal damnation. He is not playing games. This this is as serious as it gets. Verse 10, 4, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. One or the other. One or the other. You can either subscribe to what God has revealed clearly in Scripture as the Gospel, and it is from page to page. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the glorious Gospel of Christ throughout the written Word. You deviate from that. You deviate from God. You desert God. You're a turncoat. You're a traitor. You've committed treason. So we need to choose a side. Will I yield to the revealed truth of the gospel, ensuring that I understand that it is what brings me to salvation, it is what sanctifies me, and it is what will glorify me. The gospel has a past, present, and a future aspect to it. The past aspect of the gospel is what we call justification. Justification is that God has removed has removed the penalty of sin from me. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, He paid the penalty. He paid the price. When I come to know Christ as my Savior, through faith in Him, God removes my sin forever. It is gone as far as the east is, is, as far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed my transgression from me. The penalty of sin is gone for the believer. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth, friends. Justification means I'll never pay a, uh, uh, 
come into account for my sin. Jesus already took account of it. Justification. There's also a present aspect of salvation or, or the gospel, and that's we call sanctification. Sanctification. That is, God is, is continually removing the power of sin over me. He's not removing the power of sin so that it isn't there. He's, he's made it so that sin does not have to rule over me. He has broken sin's mastery. Sin used to be my master. I had no choice but to sin. As a believer, through sanctification, God has broken the mastery of sin. Sin has no right, no right to rule over me because of the gospel. When sin rules over me, it's because I have chosen to yield my allegiance to it rather than God. Sanctification. God is removing the power of sin over me. Another way we can look at that concept of sanctification I think this is important to understand. Sanctification is the outworking of God's work of justification. Sanctification is the outworking of God's work of justification. In other words, God saved us. Okay, so He removed the the, the penalty of sin from me. I have a, a new standing. He also added to my life, added to my account righteousness and in that righteousness i have the opportunity by the power of the spirit god can work out that righteousness in a in an external way so justification works its way out in sanctification so people can actually see that i'm justified that's really one of the ways that you can recognize the difference between justification okay justification god did this he removed my sin and he added to my account righteousness okay sanctification that reality coming and fleshing out in my life people can see the justification of god in my life sanctification and then the future aspect of the gospel glorification god is removing me from the presence of sin, or God will remove me from the presence of sin. Now listen, justification, sanctification, and glorification are all works of God. They're all works of God. They're divine. Our responsibility in the Gospel, whether it be past, present, or future, is always the same. Trust Him. Surrender to Him. I don't add to His work with my efforts. And I... Simply, my responsibility is simply to surrender myself to God's working. It's a submission of the heart. It's a yielding of my life. It's a recognition. I am at your disposal, God. Call it walking in the Spirit. You can call it the fear of the Lord. You can call it walking by grace. You can call it walking in the Gospel. But my responsibility stays the same. It's faith in Christ. Just a very brief listing of Scripture passages. They'll be on the screen behind me. Just demonstrating that justification, sanctification, and glorification are a work of God and not of man. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, For those who he, whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who's doing this work? God is. What is he doing? Well, he's foreknowing and he's predestining, right? He's predestining and he's calling. He's calling and he's justifying. He's justifying and he's glorifying. That's his work. And they're all written in the past tense as if they're done already because God's work always gets done. You believe that? Anyone going to thwart God's work? 
Absolutely not. It never is thwarted. He always accomplishes his will. That's what makes him sovereign. That's what makes him God. He is perfect in his ways. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, this has the idea of the concept of sanctification here. In verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, how much? Completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to do this? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Whose work is this? It's God's work. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Well, we know of this passage as well. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we have that, that concept of sanctification. He's still working. He's, he's going to bring it to completion. So we have glorification. Now we have another text of Scripture about glorification. It's in Philippians chapter 3. It's one of those, those expectations. We're looking for the return of Jesus. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, heaven, we await what? A Savior. Whom? A Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. What's He going to do? He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subdue all things. That's called sovereignty. All things to Himself. In the power that He sovereignly rules the universe, it's the same power He'll use to make me exactly like Himself. Glorification. Friends, the Gospel is about God. The Gospel is about Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. The Gospel is about the divine working amongst people. These important works of the Gospel are divine. Any attempt, listen carefully, any attempt... To humanize these is a distortion. It's a corruption. It's cancer. It's poison. It's deadly. And it's punishable by damnation. Ladies and gentlemen, we're playing with fire right here. The gospel God takes as serious as anything. And from the beginning... There has always been and there always will be an assault against the gospel because it's the only thing that saves, it's the only thing that sanctifies, and it's the only thing that glorifies. And Satan will try, before someone comes to know Christ, to distort the gospel. After someone comes to Christ to distort the gospel. Before and after. And churches, many, 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 many churches have fallen prey to that distortion of adding, adding other things, fine things, good things. They seem, they seem so right that Christian things should be done. We should act Christianly and we should think Christianly and we should speak Christianly and we should do Christianly. It's very good things. They are not fine substitutes for the gospel. In fact, they are poisonous substitutes for the gospel. Any attempts to humanize the gospel is akin to changing sides. This passage before us this morning is passionate and powerful, and it tells us you must choose a side. Paul is absolutely shocked. He's absolutely shocked that he has to write this letter now. He starts off by saying, I am astonished. The word could easily be changed if we were writing it today. You are blowing my mind. 
It blows my mind that you would do this. You've heard the gospel. You've tasted the gospel. You've tasted Christ. You've experienced God's working. And you're turning to something else? It blows my mind that you would do that. Why would you ever turn to something else as if it's better than what God has provided you? Friends, I'm equally astonished. Turn on the radio and listen. Oh, they'll give, they'll give some gospel truth. They'll talk about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and being raised again and that being the, the, what you need for salvation. And then you'll hear them talk to you about how to live and tell you to go and do likewise. That is a, an offense to the gospel. The gospel works that thing out in your life. It, when the gospel is working in you and you're walking in the gospel, yes, you'll be obedient. You'll do those things that are written in the scriptures. The Bible tells us that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But that's not what you're hearing on the radio. It's not what you're hearing on the television. You turn on YouTube and you find a fine sermon about how to be a good Christian. And they tell you all the fleshly means by which you can be a really good Christian. I want to tell you something. That's flesh. It'll never make you like Jesus. You might look to yourself and to others like you've become Christianized. But if the Spirit doesn't do that work, if the Spirit's not doing that work, it's not of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Listen, here we are. We recognize ourselves. I recognize myself. I stand in this pulpit privileged and humbled and I tell you I've got nothing I can't do this I come and I have to come and say God I need your help to do this without you I've got nothing to offer anyone nice techniques about how to communicate a lesson fantastic without the spirit it's got nothing the word is great and the word is dynamic and God can use me in spite of the word but if I don't come surrender to the spirit I can't help you same for every, every, every aspect of our lives, every minute of every day. To humanize any of the aspects of the gospel is to be a traitor to the gospel. It's to change sides. I am astonished. You're blowing my mind. You're so quickly deserting him. We come to our first idea here in the text. Going beyond the gospel is going beyond God. Let that one sit in there. Let it sink in. Going beyond the gospel is going beyond God. Listen to what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Not a message, though that is also true. Not just salvation, though that may be true. He's writing to a church, right? Right? So we understand that he's writing to a church. Hey, listen. Not everyone that goes to church is a Christian. Did you know that? I'm not trying to sit here and tell you you're not a Christian, that don't, don't take that the wrong way. I'm telling you, he's addressing a, a group of churches. Not everyone that's, that's hearing this message read and hearing it preached is a Christian. He said, if you desert God, are you going to spend eternity in heaven? What's the likelihood that that's how a, a gospel-oriented person is going to, going to spend their time deserting God? Not likely. God works in our lives so that we cling to him and the reason we cling to him is because he clings to us but there's a clinging and it starts with him he's the cause but we see the evidence thereof right 
We don't say, oh yes, I walked an aisle one time when I was four years old, and I know I've been saved ever since. I just haven't ever gone to church. I don't ever read my Bible. I don't pray. Nothing. I just know I'm a Christian because my mommy told me. Really, that's how it works. Or maybe, maybe the gospel impacts us beyond that initial stage of coming to Christ and then abiding in Christ and then demonstrating Christ and then preaching Christ, displaying Christ. That's what the gospel does. The gospel changes us. So we're not saying that that we all say a prayer sometime and then the gospel and I don't ever have to think about anything ever again. Paul is, he's really strong on this matter. He's saying you're deserting him. The word desert, I, I give you all the definitions up here. It's really cool. To transfer, that word can be named to transfer or to change or to transfer oneself or suffer oneself to be transferred. Okay, so someone transferred me. That's not the idea here. To go or pass over. I think that one really fits very nicely. To go or pass over or to fall away or desert from one person or thing to another. That's another way you could... Those last two really cover it. And I want you to think about this. When you see what God has offered in the Gospel and you say, boy, that's really great. I also need this. You know what you're doing? You're leaving God in the dust. That, that's, the, that's the other way you can to leave something in the dust. That one's not in the, in the uh, lexicon or the uh, concordance. That's, that's like a 21st century translation, to leave something in the dust. When we think that God is not enough, I need something else. When we see what God has said, and I say, well, yeah, but I need to do this too, you're leaving God in the dust, going beyond Him. It's personal. Deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. Let's, let's hold our hands here. We're going to come back, but I want you to turn to two passages of Scripture, actually three between now and then, so maybe you put something in, in, in Galatians. But take a look at a couple of passages with me. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and Jesus gives this beautiful description of a wedding feast that is put on. And he's called these people. He's called them to come and enjoy this feast. Enjoy this wedding banquet. He wants them to come. He issued the invitation, beginning in verse 12 of Luke chapter 14. Said, and he said to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do you not invite your friends? Excuse me, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Many are invited. The invitation went out. They said, thanks anyway. A little bit more is added to this in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 22, please. Matthew 22. I'm going to cut right into the middle of it because it's just in, in a, a little bit more information, a little bit beyond the amount of parabolic information that Jesus gives in Luke. Matthew adds to that. Jesus does, but Matthew records it. In verse 11 Matthew twenty two eleven, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, "Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment?" And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, "Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer into the outer darkness. Into that place there will be." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen carefully. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's how he concludes that. What is he saying here about these wedding clothes? And and what is up with this guy coming into the feast and not having the wedding clothes? Maybe he's just really broke, right? He doesn't have enough. How, How, on short notice, going out to a homeless person, can you expect them to put on wedding attire? What are you thinking? Why such a grievous punishment? Did you notice how the man was speechless? He was speechless. Like, if he were unable to provide wedding garments for himself, he would have said, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't. I would have. I'm not sure what you want me to do. It is, it's not easily understood, and I, I don't know that we can be certain But it's likely that in those days, the one who hosted such a banquet would provide at the door a set of garments for someone. And it certainly makes sense in this context that that is a a factual historical understanding. Now, there's, there's... it's a mixed bag as you look at historical sources about whether there's any credence to to that being uh, a pattern. But I think this illustration kind of warrants that understanding because he's speechless And then such a devastating consequence. And then Jesus concludes with, many are called, few are chosen. There's something different between those two things? I'd say yes, there is a difference. Now, it gets convoluted as you search through the New Testament using the Greek word because the words can kind of be used interchangeably. However, One of the things that you know is that the gospel is a gospel for everyone. The cry of the gospel is for everyone. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter talks about the fact that people have disobeyed the gospel. In other places, he says they obeyed the gospel. 
What is it to obey the gospel? Well, here's the call. Jesus died in your, on the cross to pay for your sin. Jesus lived a perfect life that he might provide you with righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross for your sin, he died in your place. He was buried in the third day. He rose again, triumphant over sin. God accepted his, his sacrifice. And if you will trust Christ, you can have eternal life. That, that cry goes forth to everyone. But few are chosen. Just remember this. Back in Romans chapter 8, there is no mistaking. It says, those whom he foreknew are those whom he predestined, are those whom he called, are those whom he justified, are those whom he glorified. It's the same set of people. Don't, don't miss that understanding. It's very clear. Now, you don't like it. Your, your mind says, ah, oh, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with how I think about things. What does the text of Scripture say? Many are called. The gospel goes to everyone. And anyone that spends eternity in hell will give an account of the fact that they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. But few are chosen. Those whom God chooses are His. Now, think about this. We've got this, these garments. The garments. Refusing to put them on. I want you to turn to one other passage of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One of the things that we realize that Jesus' parable gives us very good intimation toward, and Paul really drives home here, your background doesn't matter. Your race doesn't matter. Your intellect doesn't matter. Your wealth doesn't matter when it comes to the righteousness of Christ. A smart person doesn't have a leg up on someone who's less smart when it comes to the righteousness of Christ. A wealthy person doesn't have a leg up on someone who has less wealth when it comes to the righteousness of Christ. A person with a a great background or a poor background, no leg up when it comes to the righteousness of Christ. Take a look, please, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, prestige. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Now remember when Jesus was giving the parable, he said the poor, the blind, the, uh, the, the lame, the crippled. Remember he used those terms. He kept saying, go out and find these people. And here Paul is saying it differently. Your wisdom, your wealth, your status, your nobility. That's not, that's not it. Verse 28, But God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that seem to be. It says the things that are, but you know, things that, that really, they look and you think, boy, high status. Boy, wish I could be like that guy. No, 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 no. Listen. We, we used to sing a song. We don't sing. I don't think I've, we've sung it for a while. I'm a child of the king. No one in this earth outranks you. You have, if you've trusted Christ, you are of highest nobility. Think about that. That's awesome. This is what happens when God calls us and brings us into his family. He goes on, verse 29, so that no human being might boast of himself in the presence of God. 
Listen carefully. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. You might be not so wise, but Jesus is your wisdom. You might not be so righteous, but Jesus is your righteousness. Hey, you might not be all that holy. And my suspicion is, if you're anything like me, you're not all that holy. I know myself. It's not a very pretty picture of myself. Holiness is not there. But Jesus has become for me sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts do what? Boast. In the Lord, it's not me. It's not my works. It's not my righteousness. It's not my goodness. It's not my wisdom. It's not my nobility. It's not about me. It's about Him. And and you know what Paul says? It blows my mind. It blows my mind that you would desert Him. The one that has done this for you. How would you desert Him who called you into the grace of Christ to go to another Gospel? Friends, there is no other Gospel. A distortion of the Gospel. It, it, it brings it into a whole other category. It's not the Gospel. And yet we tolerate it. We can't tolerate it. God doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't tolerate a violation of the Gospel. We have to be vehement. We have to be dogmatic. A desertion of the Gospel is a desertion of God which is why we hold ourselves to the standard we had better convey the true gospel of Christ. Listen, to go beyond the gospel is desert, desert God himself. It's, it's like saying, I've got it from here. You've brought me so far, I've got the steering wheel. I'll take it from here. I got it. This is what religion does every day. They constantly say, hey, You've got to grab onto this. You've got to do this thing. You've got to go do this and be like this and don't do that. And that'll make you holy. No, it won't. It'll make you a person that doesn't do those things. And it might be good that you don't do those things. And I'd say, add a boy, that you didn't do those things. If they're the wrong things, I don't want you to do them. I don't want to do them. I'm not saying that the gospel says, hey, it's all right, man. Hang loose. It's fine. Do it. That's not the concept. The concept is, God can free you from your bondage to sin. And He will if you yield to Him. Notice this warning is to professing believers. God is warning them that they can inadvertently desert Him as they shift, listen, as they shift from the essentials of the Gospel to another insufficient way of life. Head back to Galatians chapter 1. We're not done with point number one, but the other points are quick, so don't panic where you're sitting. Back in verse 6 of Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning, and are turning to a different gospel. The terms, the words and are turning are not in the original. They're not. The translators of the ESV are borrowing back from the word deserting. So really, I think a preferable reading of this, rather than than adding some words that aren't there, is you are so quickly, I'm, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Or for a different gospel. That's how it reads in the original languages. The end turning is added information we don't need. 
The deserting Christ, the deserting God himself, is what we need to see from that text. Not and our turning. You're deserting him for something else, a different gospel. And then he says in the next verse, not that there is another one. Second point here this morning, shifting the gospel distorts the gospel. Shifting the gospel distorts the gospel. We see that in verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. The word there, trouble, has the idea of causing an inward commotion. They're trying to get you to feel inferior, insufficient, lacking. I want you to think about that. When you sit in a service and someone is trying to make you feel guilty, trying to, I've sat in said services far too many times in my life. I don't want to sit in those services. Trying to make you feel guilty. Listen, when we look at the Word of God, it shows us our insufficiency. You don't have to try to do that. There's no trying necessary. When you see Christ and you see you, the, the difference is so plain that no one has to say, look, you didn't meet this standard. Look, you didn't meet that standard. Look, you, should be, you need to be like this, 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 this. No. They're trying to cause an inward commotion. You don't have enough. Hey, the gospel is enough. God has this for you too. God has this for you. And that was going on in this, this first century. You, you can see it in Colossians. You can see it in Ephesians. You can see it here in Galatians. You can see it all over the pages of Scripture that people are trying to add requirements that God doesn't add. In fact, the way Paul says it in Colossians, you are complete in Him. Is that enough? These folks are trying to cause consternation, commotion inside of them. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, it says. The term distort is the Greek term metastrepho. It means to turn away or to turn around. You're going this way, following Christ, following the gospel. I see what God has said. No, 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 no. No, there's something over here. Or... You kind of get this uh, image, right? You get this thing and you turn it around. You see what that's going on? You turn it around. You're twisting it. There are some who want to cause an inward consternation and they distort the gospel. Listen carefully. Mixing, mixing non-gospel elements into the Christian life is a distortion of what God has given to change your life. Additions or subtractions from the gospel result in a non-saving, non-sanctifying gospel. Listen, folks, God doesn't save us to leave us wallowing in our sin. He saves us to break the chains of our sin. When the gospel is applied to our lives daily, we will experience God's power over our sin. That's not to say that that will happen in your life every second of every day. Listen, there are manifestations of my own yieldedness to my own nature. I yield to this king. Whenever I yield to this king, flesh comes forth. That's sinfulness. When I yield to that king, however, fruitfulness comes forth. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering gentleness, faith, meekness, 
and temperance. Listen carefully. Against such, there's no law. You don't need to legislate God's work. What happens when the Spirit's controlling is you fulfill the display of His character that we've seen in Christ. We fall short at times, but we do experience God's rescue throughout our lives. If you do not see God's rescue, if you don't experience God's rescue in your life from time to time, it's possible that you need to encounter the gospel by faith for the first time. If you are constantly befuddled by your own wickedness every day without check, and you wonder, wow, what's, how come this isn't working for me? I see it working for that guy. I see it working for that girl. And it doesn't work for me. Something's wrong with me. Maybe, yeah, maybe you might be right. Maybe it is that you have not actually encountered the gospel by faith for the first time and recognized its all-sufficiency and its saving nature. Maybe, maybe that's it. See, a twisting of the gospel, a shifting from the gospel is, is to just completely set the gospel aside as if it doesn't exist. It's a distortion. Thirdly, as we look through this passage, the gospel has been firmly established. The gospel has been firmly established. Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that the to the one you received, let him be accursed. All right. Well, I don't expect any of us to to to, to see the apostle Paul coming out of the woodwork and start preaching. How do we apply this? If your pastor, if the elders, if your Sunday school teacher, if you're a wanna worker, if you're teen leader, if your favorite radio speaker, TV speaker, YouTube speaker says something contrary to the gospel, cut it off. Why bother? Why bother listening to something that's driving you away from Christ rather than toward Christ? The preaching from the pulpit should always drive you toward Christ. It should point you toward Christ. It should make Christ more lovely and more beautiful and more admirable and, and, and more appealing than ever. When we leave here on a Sunday, a Wednesday, a Saturday morning, whatever time we're together, we should always leave here hungering and thirsting more for Christ. If we leave with our faces dragging and hungering and thirsting for something else, we have not communicated properly the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel's been firmly established. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and, 3 and 4, it's very simple. For, for, God, for Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm, I'm, I'm not communicating the right verse, so I'm going to look at it instead of quoting it, because I just said to you 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, instead of... 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, where the Bible says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What's the, what's the point of this Gospel? I have sin. Christ has life. 
Christ died for my sin that I might have life. He became the first fruits of them who slept. Those who trust Christ have their sins moved away, washed away, taken away, and we're, we're given the life of Christ and we'll be raised again with Him. The Gospel's been firmly established. It, it, it's not a mystery. The, the text of Scripture declares the Gospel over and over again. Satan tries to twist the Gospel. The world tries to deny the Gospel. Religion tries to add to the Gospel. As a church, we must protect against any variation, any variation from the Gospel. Look at chapter 3 of Galatians. You're already in Galatians. Take a look at chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? What is his expectation of an answer? No! The flesh never perfects itself. Want to be quite honest about it, the, the flesh only perverts itself. It corrupts itself. It grows in its corruption daily. We get better at our sinfulness, not worse at it. But the Spirit, the Spirit who saved us, He regenerated us, He made us alive, is the one that makes us alive every day. And He brings forth the fruitfulness every day. We're perfected not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. The Gospel's been firmly established both unto salvation and throughout our Christian life. Fourthly, back in Galatians chapter 1, Distorting the gospel warrants condemnation. He says it twice, once at the, at the end of verse 8, at the end of verse 9, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. He says it twice. Distorting the gospel warrants condemnation. Now James made this proclamation. We're familiar with it. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Why? Why? Lead people into error... You're accountable for that. You're accountable for that. Leading people away from Christ and away from the gospel and towards something else. That, that is, that's bad news. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, the, the elders are, are supposed to be able to, to sniff out people like this. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They're adding requirements uh, to the, 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 the growing process of the Christian life. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They must be silenced. How serious is this? It's, it's serious. What does God say about it when He communicates to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? He says, Yet this you have... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. What does it say? Which I also hate. Now they added to the Gospel in a different way. The Nicolaitans were libertarians. Liberate from everything. With no basis back in the Gospel. Now listen. 
a gospel-centered person, a Christ-centered person, a Christ-centered or gospel-centered church will point you to Christ and, and His sufficiency and His glory and His wonder and His salvation and everything He has done and, and the fact that you're connected to Him, that you're in Him and that can never be stopped. But they'll also say that as the, the gospel works its way in your life, that will start to display itself in your life. To someone to say, nah, we're good. We're all set with that. Listen, the flesh is evil. And it'll never be good. You may as well give it up. Just indulge. Because you can't be good anyway. That's what the Nicolaitans said. And God said, I hate that. I hate that. That, that is not for me. That's adding to the gospel in a different way. And he, he brings that up again to, to, the, to two churches down in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 14 and through 16. He says this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, what does he say? Hey, don't worry about it. You're good. No. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you. Oh, oh good, good. Jesus is coming. Um... No. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, God hates false doctrine because of what it does. He's not playing games, folks. Accursed. That's what he says. Devoted to everlasting destruction. Why so serious? Why so violent? Ready? The gospel is the only thing that saves. The gospel is the only thing that sanctifies. Hey, the gospel is the only thing that glorifies. It means that it brings us home to heaven like Jesus. The gospel is the only thing that does that. To, to distort that is unacceptable. That's why so serious. That's why so violent. That's why damnable is the distortion of the gospel. And friends, we cannot tolerate it. Because to distort the gospel or to go beyond the gospel is to deny God, to, to, to go beyond God, to desert God, to distort the gospel, to shift it, is, is to change it into something it is not. The gospel is fixed and it is firm, and to distort it is damnable. Fifthly and finally, the gospel is the basis of our standing before God. This is how he ends the paragraph. He asks them some questions. He says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man? Do I want people to think well of me? Or am I seeking the approval of God? If I want the approval of men, I can certainly follow after some non-gospel message. I could probably do okay with it. I'm a pretty smart guy. I could probably find a way to get people to, to feel good about me. You could probably do the same thing. Do I want to be approved by God? Well, let, let me think about this. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. That's what Isaiah said. God, accept me for who I am. I try really, 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 really hard. Please accept me for who I am. God accepts no man's person. I know one. You know, one he accepts. 
His name is Jesus. Perfect in every way. Flawless, spotless, perfect. And when I come to faith in Christ, God unites me together with him forever. My approval isn't based upon me. It's not based upon this a preaching ministry. It's not based upon being a chaplain. It's not based upon being a doctor. It's not based upon any of that nonsense stuff. It's not any of that. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. There's our approval. Do I seek the approval of men? Oh, I can figure that out. Or do I seek the approval of God? Oh, if, if I need to seek the approval of God, I need to go through Christ and Christ alone, and I better not distort it, because any distortion is not to have Christ at all. It's deserting him. He goes on, if that wasn't enough for us, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, if I were still trying, I'm not. If I were trying to still please man, he used to, remember? When he profited in Judaism above all of his equals, when he was the, the Pharisee of Pharisees and the Hebrew of Hebrews, when he could puff out his chest and say, there's nobody that follows the law like me! If I were still trying to please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. I have to choose sides. And I, I choose him. I choose him every time. He never fails. He's, never, he's flawless in all of his ways. It's always right to choose Christ unto salvation in my Christian walk. And one day when I stand before God, guess what? I only have the same thing to offer him that it had to offer on the day of my salvation. I got, I got Christ. And Christ is enough for me. Is he enough for you? Listen, folks. We can't accept anything other than the Gospel. We cannot tolerate a violation of the Gospel. We cannot stand by and mix error with the gospel and and take things that God intends to be an outgrowth of the gospel and put them before the gospel. The gospel is the hub, the sum and substance of who we are before God, which is why he's so vehement. The gospel is the basis of our standing with God. It's one or the other. You cannot distort the gospel and leave God in the dust. You, you, you can. You can distort the gospel and leave God in the dust. Or you can hold to the gospel, which is the basis of our relationship with, with God. We can't please God under any other circumstances. Just I'm going to list six verses in a row. They'll be on the screen, and we will pray. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is, or that He exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him. In Romans 11.20, you stand by faith. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, by faith you stand. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, exhorting and testifying. This is what I've been doing. The whole letter, I've been exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And he ends 2 Peter by saying this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Why does that end with a doxology? Because all of the credit belongs to Him when we grow in grace. When we stand by faith, it's all of Him. 
Our standing is based upon faith. Our standing is based upon grace. Our standing is based upon the gospel. You want the approval of God or you want to please men? It's only through Christ. You must choose a side. Either you choose you or you choose him. Which one are you going to choose? Going beyond the gospel is an act of treason. It is departing from God. It's departing from the God of our salvation. What a horrible thing, which is why Paul said, I, it just blows my mind that anyone would choose this route. How about you? How about me? How about us? Gospel or something else? Let's go. Let's go with the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We love you. And we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.